Canadians from coast to coast were horrified and in some cases shocked to learn that the remains of 215 children, some of them toddlers, were found recently in unmarked graves on the grounds of a former residential school in Kamloops, B.C. But should they have been shocked? We've known about the horrors endured by Indigenous children in what we euphemistically call residential schools for some time now. The abuses are clearly spelled out in the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, a report that came out six years ago, and survivors were telling their stories long before that. And while Canadian schools, by and large, did not teach the history of residential schools until relatively recently, there is now no excuse for not being aware of what was done to generations of Indigenous children and their families. So what do we do now? Well, that's one of the things that we wanted to look at in this episode of the Blackburn News Podcast. We didn't want to ask survivors to relive their trauma and tell us about their experiences. They've already done that. We wanted to find out how Canadians can reckon with this indelible stain on the fabric of our nation. Here is the host of this episode, Craig Needles. On the podcast this week, we are pleased to welcome in Sarah May Chitty. Sarah May is an Anishinaabe advocate in the community, an activist, and she's, of course, someone who sadly knows a lot about the history of residential schools in this province and in this country. She uh, joins us here on the Blackburn News Podcast. Sarah May, thank you so much for doing this with us. Glad you could give us some time today. Thanks for having me today, Craig. The last week has just been horrific from a news perspective. There's, there's, there's no way around that. We hear that 215 bodies of children, in some cases toddlers, found at a residential school in Kamloops, British Columbia. Uh, what's your reaction to Canadians hearing about that and finding out about that? Because I know there are some Canadians who didn't realize how horrible residential schools were. They had heard about the term and think, oh yeah, something bad happened there. But when you start finding mass graves and you sort of realize, wow, this was horrific and this is the shame of a nation. So your reaction to what we've seen over the last week here? I'm pretty disappointed, to be honest. Um, I'm not going, like, so as part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report and calls to action that came out in 2015, there was an entire section dedicated to, like, looking into the stories that were told. So over 6,000 survivors and family members of people who didn't make it home were interviewed in this Truth and Reconciliation Commission process that took place I don't have the exact start date of it, but it took place, I want to say from 2008 2000, or 2009 to 2015 when the final report was published. And some of those stories included stories of being asked to dig these graves and, be, and, and knowing that this had happened in a lot of different ways. And so that was a, a part of the, the report was this needs to be investigated the money needs to be put into the technology that can do these kinds of investigations. And I think um, I saw somebody post this, so I didn't cross-reference it, but something along the lines of it was like about 1.5 million was kind of the, the budget that they had proposed to do that, and it was denied. And so I just kind of wonder, you know, it makes me question things like media, like um, mainstream and independent media, or like what people are following too, because 
um, or like not even like because I don't even want to say that I feel like a lot of news organizations are doing um, a lot of good work to try to try to bring Indigenous stories to light. Um, But it just makes me wonder how for five years people since the Truth and Reconciliation Commission their main focus was to do this so that no one in Canada would not know what happened. And so that schools everywhere would incorporate this part of history and on the ongoing legacy into their curriculum. And, you know, I think about things like, this is just going to be me ranting now because it's all connected, but it's like things like Doug Ford, who kind of like scrapped the work that was being done on introducing this into the curriculum. And it makes me think about um, in 2020, how the Yellowhead Institute did sort of a report card on the calls to action from that, um, from the TRC and nothing was completed. I mean, I know it was a pandemic, but there was, you know, (laughs) as we saw in the pandemic, Mm-hmm. A lot of the things that the TRC talks about in terms of inequities and a lot of other reports about Indigenous peoples, like the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples and the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Report, do at times. And recently, Joyce Echequan in Quebec, who who was who died because of inadequate healthcare that was racist. All of these things have been flagged as like problematic and need to be fixed, and there are solutions to fix them. And uh, and then are exposed during the pandemic, like how how these inequities play out. And then we have a bunch of people now that are throwing throwing their hands up and being like, I had no idea. It just gets really old. I kind of think that's on them, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, I'd agree with that entirely. And I, I've seen a lot of posts saying, hey, we didn't learn about this in school, which is true. And I I graduated high school in 2003. Uh, and that's not something that we learned about when I was there. That's, that's changed now, which is good. But at the same time, we've had plenty of opportunity to be educated about that since then. Stephen Harper had a big apology uh, for residential schools, which obviously is not nearly enough, but it's a start. Uh, so this has been in the discourse for some time. So I don't think anyone should have been uh, completely shocked when they heard, oh yeah, uh, at least one of these places, and let's be honest, probably more, there were 215 kids buried. Yeah, and I've seen it pop up a bit too. There's been some folks that are hesitant to um, say anything about it or they're like, I don't want to jump to conclusions. Um, and and that kind of rhetoric of like, oh, maybe they all died of natural causes. Maybe mm-hmm. they, maybe there was a mass outbreak at the at the school and they didn't know how to deal. Okay, even if I want to entertain that for a second, um, why were they all dumped in a mass unmarked grave? Yeah. <laughs> like, I just, I really think that they're, and I get you, because of what we just spoke about, no one learned about it in school, but there is this illusion of Canada that it takes a long time to, I think for anyone, including myself as an Indigenous person, to dismantle and interrogate what what it means to be a Canadian and what that means in the context of colonialism and what that means when there are 215 plus dead children 
um, and what they died for. And I just think about the purpose of residential schools. It's well-documented, Duncan Campbell Scott, um, Johnny McDonald. It was, the point was so that there wouldn't be any Indigenous people left. And that's what the Indian Act was created for Indian status. And this, it just gets very complicated. And I can understand for anyone that's very overwhelming. Um, but it's, I just think we can't continue on to think that we live in this society and we get to do what we want when we want, and we aren't responsible to each other or accountable to each other. And we really need to think about yeah, what does that mean to be Canadian and to benefit from the oppression of of Indigenous peoples? Like, what does that really mean? And do we really want to go on like this? And if we do, like, I just want to know why. Like, why why does it have to be like this? You know, it's I'm so tired of being sad and so angry. <laughs> yeah, I, I I understand, Sarah May. I do, and I I, I look at when we have a big discussion, this is, you know, when we're talking about missing and murdered indigenous women, but this all, um, all all really goes hand in hand. If you think about it, uh, there's a big discussion as to whether, well, did Canada commit genocide and are we leaping too quickly to use the term genocide? If you have a school that you force kids to go to and 215 of them were buried in an unmarked grave, how are we discussing whether a genocide went on? Like, 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 like that's, that's, that's the part that I, I don't understand is how is that even a conversation? That's clearly what's happened. So let's just, let's just own it and, and just say, okay, this is what occurred. This is what we need to do. Yeah. But, and by all conventions, like the United Nations has a definition of genocide. I don't have it right in front of me, but there is an executive report after that criticism. So when, um, June 3rd is the anniversary of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Two-Spirit Report, and that has over 230 calls to justice. And they, yeah, as you said, that's where the term genocide came. It was officially kind of stated because in the TRC, they uh, danced around it. They called it cultural genocide. Right. And so then this time around, they're saying, they said genocide. And so then there were, you know, criticisms of that because uh, you know, in a lot of people's eyes, genocide is um, the Holocaust is like the very blatant um, violence, people being just like gunned down in the street. It doesn't look like policy. It doesn't look like um, infrastructure uh, or like not. It doesn't look like uh, resource hoarding um, in <laughs> and those kinds of things. And so. I guess what I what I, I just like don't understand is by that definition, by this United Nations definition, and even today when um, you know we talk about residential schools, and uh, a part of the definition of the genocide is taking children away from their parents and taking them out of the culture or the community, that kind of thing, and so then that legacy of residential schools is that. Um, children that are grandchildren or children of residential school survivors are more than twice as likely to actually end up in the child welfare system. And so, you know, we can talk about it being genocide in the past, but I also think we need to look at the way Canada 
has a really like nice way of going about genocide to put it. I don't, I don't know how else to put it. Mm-hmm. It's n- certainly not on the same scale of the Yurgers in China. It's not Rwanda. It's not, you know, but I think if over half of the children in care in Canada right now, as of at least the two, 2016 census, if over half the children in Canada's state care, state ch- child welfare are indigenous, um, and like, and if, you know, APTN did a huge investigation and over the past, so, oh, I wish I had pulled up the stats, but it was, tw- it was over the course of two, since at least 2013, easily, I think if you tally up all the numbers, almost 200 Indigenous children have died in connection to or while in care, like in yeah. child welfare. So, it's like, yeah, so it's like, yeah, how how can we paint this as anything but genocide when Indigenous kids are still dying and they're found in an unmarked grave? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, yeah. it's true. And I got the UN's definition of genocide in front of me, which is killing members of the group. Yes. Causing serious bodily harm or mental uh, harm to members of the group. Unquestionably, yes. Deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about a physical destruction in whole or in part. Yes. Imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. Yes, which is uh, horrific, but that's absolutely something that's gone on. And forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. So there are the five points of what the UN would define as genocide. And Canada unquestionably checks all five boxes. That's it. Like, that's that's what happened here. So the question I guess I would have for you, Sarah May, is where, once we acknowledge that this is something that occurred and it's horrific, what should we be doing now? Because the future clearly is is in question and stopping this horrible trend is a question. So what do you think we should be doing about it? What should governments be talking about right now? What should people in this country be talking about right now? It's going to sound so flighty or like I don't even know what. But I think in many ways, like we need to use our imaginations And stop, like, reinforcing what is being done as, like, this is the way it's always been done and that's just the way things are. And really look at, like, radically changing the systems and structures in place in every institution, in every organization, from the government all the way down. And and it's going to be, it, it involves everyone. Like, I just think we need to give up this passive idea of what, like, even in our country, the idea of democracy, we don't even have people participating in the policies and the procedures that will affect them personally and their and their personal lives in a really engaged way. And a lot of like indigenous communities model that um, and, and try are, are trying to get back to that, to that decision making process that involves everyone. But also like, yeah, so what could that look like on such a huge scale? But like, I just think we really, I don't know, like we just we have to get creative and we have to understand that things can't continue on the trajectory that they've been continuing on because like, I don't think people realize that it's not just indigenous people. Like we share the land now through treaties. And I was explaining this to someone the other day, like when it comes to treaty rights, for example, um, if a corporation comes and builds a pulp mill and it's, pumping effluent into the water and now I can't fish anymore. My treaty rights have been violated. 
But that also is a legal framework for indigenous peoples to challenge land use. And it's embedded in the constitution. So when corporations can come in and they can undermine the Canadian constitution under indigenous rights and free and prior informed consent and treaties, all Canadians should think about the consequences of that. And when it comes to land and, and climate change, and I know there's all kinds of people who deny it's happening, but it's like, it's kind of like with the pandemic, right? Like it's like the science is there, the understanding is there. It's just this weird cognitive dissonance where everyone I think just wants to live their life like and not have to worry about problems, mm -hmm. but it's like, it's all our problem and we have to solve it. And so, you know, like I hate to be like, care about our rights because it benefits you, but that's exactly what it is. like there we still have our teachings and our stories and ways of doing things that i just see as 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 a solution to so much of the violence and the destruction that um i guess like i i don't want to say colonialism because it kind of makes it a faceless nameless entity but that canada as a as a government as attachment to the crown um, has like brought upon this land and the peoples that are indigenous to it. And yeah, I guess like it's big, it's really big and people will all be all over the map and grappling with it is, uh, there's a lot of guilt, but you have to like move through that and, and pull up your sleeves and recognize that maybe everything you thought, you know, you knew is, is not, necessarily the whole story or the truth and, and then really start to ask questions and and then really just like look at ways to center indigenous voices and other voices that are intentionally marginalized and made vulnerable as well and and we need to start thinking a little like we need yeah i don't know and, it, and this is we're talking mass cultural shift mm -hmm. and i can already just hear the people like rioting in the background about what I'm saying. Um, but I just, I guess, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't think like, I don't want to plead for people's like for the, for people to recognize the humanity right. of indigenous peoples. But like, I you just shouldn't think, have to. Yeah. I think we all have a responsibility yeah. here. Yeah. No, and I, 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 I couldn't agree more that we do. And I, I look at sometimes people sort of, try to separate themselves from this and they, they hear, oh, that happened in British Columbia. No, the, the, all, all these things must have happened sort of in the, in the prairie provinces or, you know, in northern Ontario. Uh, Mohawk yes. Institute Residential School was in Brantford, Ontario. It's not far from where we are right now. Uh, in what was at the time known as, as, as Muncie Town, it's now within Strathroy Caradoc, there was Mount Elgin, uh, Mount Elgin Indian Residential School, which is a crude term, but that was what it was called. So this is something that was, you know, uh, in operation in 1948. There's a lot of people whose, whose parents or grandparents were alive when this school was happening, when the school was operating. So it's, it, it's not something that's forever ago and it's not something that is a whole country away. It's something that was happening not particularly far from where we are right now. The Mohawk Institute Residential School was in operation in 1970. That's not that long ago. There's still people alive today, yeah, yeah that are survivors. And um, I, if you check out at LOSA's uh, Homelessness Strategy uh, strategic plan. Uh, I'm going to butcher. I should know Anishinaabe Moin better, but go, go watch God. Um, 
they draw connections to Mount Elgin Residential School and the um, outrageously disproportionate percentage of unhoused Indigenous peoples in the city, which is about 30%. And I think our population percentage of the city is about 2%. So to have 30% of the unhoused population in London be Indigenous is is quite... So like these things are, are all very connected mm-hmm. and it's very complex and it's not black and white. And I think we do a lot of work to make things simple for ourselves because, you know, if you're anything like me, you start thinking about things at night and you can't stop thinking about them. But yeah, this, these are very real things that happen. They have serious impacts on people that are living and walking around and also being awesome and amazing and like doing amazing things despite these uh, traumas and tragedies that have happened. And then there's some people that aren't walking around anymore because of it. And the best way to honor those people is to do this work. Uh, I'll ask you about the reaction. You mentioned that you thought it was it, it was underwhelming, and I agree. I don't really, uh, I don't dispute that. But at the same time, I know that, you know, you've seen stuff like, you know, moments of silence before hockey games. Uh, you've seen, you know, the, the the Facebook profile switch where you, you know, you have the, the, the banner around your picture saying, you know, you're, you're mourning the loss of, of, of those 215 kids. Uh, that doesn't change anything. But from your perspective, is that a meaningless gesture? Is it relevant that people are at the very least thinking about this? And I hope they continue to think about it into next week. Is it, is, is it relevant to you? How, what, what's your reaction when you sort of see the, the, the mainstreaming of, uh, of this type of grief? Well, so it's funny because I saw, like, I'm, um, I follow Chief Jason Henry from Chippewas of Kettle and Stony uh, Point First Nation on Facebook. And he posted that he was, uh, he just got off the phone with Doug Ford because he asked him to lower the flags um, in honor of the 215 kids. And so then I saw all these press releases and all these things coming out, like Ford to order everyone to like lower these flags. And it just like was interesting to me because I'm like, I mean, I'm sure Chief Jason Henry wasn't the only person to say something to Doug Ford about it, but it just like blows my mind that like people had to be told to do that. Um, And and it just really shows you that weird dissonance about Indigenous lives and how much they're valued, I guess. And so what you're talking about is performativity. And there was a lot of criticism about that for like Black Lives Matter last Mm -hmm. year, right? With the black square, like don't everybody like, oh, like, you know, but that's just it. It's only performative if you're not doing the work. It's only performative if you're not genuine, if you're just doing it because of a trend. And it's pretty easy to spot those things because a year from now, those organizations that lowered their their flags, if they were to say, if they were to mark this week as like, okay, this is the week we start to do do stuff. And then a year from now, on the anniversary of this news, and um, on the anniversary of this news, we look back in the past year and we see what we've done in terms of truth and reconciliation, in terms of calls to justice, in terms of, of building capacity to work in a good way with Indigenous communities and peoples. And if in a year from now, for each of those organizations, if they look back and they see that they didn't know, they didn't do anything, then then that's, that is problematic. That's the problem. Um, but I definitely think we need to observe this. We need to condemn it. We need to, we need to say and acknowledge. And, and that's, that is really important. 
but it has to include that work and that follow-up. And, and so I get why people are hesitant because they don't want to seem performative, but if you're not posting about it and you're not talking about it because you're scared, you'll be criticized as being performative. Then I think that's the answer. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, show solidarity. Like solidarity is about showing people that you care and that you don't want this to happen anymore or to anyone else either. And, and so show some solidarity and show some respect, like give people space to mourn. Like, for example, like my family is not like um, my, my, none of my parents or grandparents went to residential schools. So I feel like I can talk about this a bit easier. Like um, we kind of talked about it, uh, but uh, before we got for, for, yeah, for a survivor, like, you know, give survivors space. They don't need to tell you their stories. They don't need to relive their traumas for, for, for people to feel better about themselves. But like, yeah, like look at ways to have conversations and to show respect. Um, yeah, just show up. You can show up to memorials, you know, and I know that that can look private and, and stuff, but like, um, if you have indigenous people on your social media, they see that you're not posting or saying anything and, and it doesn't feel good either. So I almost would say, yeah, I'd rather Mm -hmm. people acknowledge and memorialize. That's just me. I'm one indigenous person, but there's definitely lots of people that are like, I don't even want to hear your tears or your sadness or how upset you are, which actually is valid. I, I, I would kind of agree that it's not about, how other people feel about this right it's like i of course it makes you sad of course it makes you angry it makes me sad it makes me really angry Mm -hmm. um and and there are people that are like calling for justice and and want it to be treated like a like a crime scene and things like that and and so there are definitely lots of people that are like yeah i don't want your orange i don't want your tears i want you to do stuff and so i think that is also important too uh before we go sarah man i'm going to ask you and this may be a question where the answer is, is very clear. I'm, I'm curious to know what you think. Is this a turning point? Because there are a lot of Canadians who for some time perhaps either didn't know or didn't want to know how horrifically this country's government treated Indigenous peoples. Is this a turning point as far as Canadians knowing that and being able to acknowledge that? Uh, even like, you know, all the political parties have, have, have acknowledged that they said it's a real thing. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a mainstream political thing. Now, whether that matches up with actions, we'll talk about that, uh, I, I suppose as well, but is this, or could this be a turning point as far as the way that people in this country acknowledge and understand what indigenous people have been put through? I hope so, <laughs> mm-hmm. but only time will tell. I thought the TRC was a turning point. (laughs) I thought I don't know more was a turning point. Um, Oh, I'm getting emotional. Yeah. Um, I hope so. And I do think that this is, that it's possible to do this work together and to make stuff happen. And because if I didn't believe it was possible, then I wouldn't do any of the work that I do. Mm -hmm. And I think people, I think people are, are in a good position now more than ever to do the work. And, and there's tons of resources out there. And like I said, there's tons of reports telling us what we can do. And there's tons of indigenous people that are like, like ready and raring to work with organizations to help guide them and and, um, also get paid, (laughs) you know, like that kind of thing. So like, (laughs) it's just like, I hope so. 
Yeah. I really hope so, Craig. Yeah, I uh, I I hope so. We as need well. it. I, I freaking need it. <laughs> yeah, no, and and we do. And I'll tell you from the perspective of 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 me as a you know a, a white guy who works in media. Um, this is obviously very anecdotal, but I we've covered uh, in my years working in this job a lot of pretty horrible stories involving indigenous people in this country. I've never seen a reaction quite like this, uh, where you know. The, you, you don't get the same responses with absolutely toxic takes or, or things along those lines. You just more get, oh, isn't this sad? Isn't this horrible? You don't see the same, at least I haven't seen the same social media toxicity. And I know that's just my experience. So that doesn't necessarily mean this is a turning point, but I feel as though this is different than previous stories like this one. So I hope I'm right. I hope that this goes the way that you and I want it to go. But as you said, time will tell. It's funny you say that, and I don't know if I'll get in trouble for saying this, but there's this Anishinaabe prophecy about uh, seven fires and the eighth fire generation. And they talk about how there will be a time where Indigenous people start to share, share their teachings and their stories and understandings. And that if people don't listen, then that spells the end. But if they do then we go together in a new way in, in, and we can kind of stop this cycle of death and destruction. And so my heart wants that more than anything. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I hope, I hope, I hope so. Craig. I, I, uh, I hope so as well. Uh, before we wrap up here, is there anything uh, you have going on? Anything you want to uh, plug or, uh, or, or let us know about or let the audience know about before we wrap up? Uh, well, I mean, I do work at Western University in the Office of Indigenous Initiatives as a curriculum and pedagogy advisor and um, in partnership with Western Libraries, research, equity and student experience. Uh, we have a learning circle that is primarily for faculty and staff. But this month we created a 30 day Indigenous History Month challenge. And so you can go to the Indigenous Student Center at Western uh, Facebook page. You can go to indigenous.uwo.ca. Um, and there's lots of, basically for almost every day of the month of June, there is like an activity or external events. We have our Indigenous Voices series the week of the, uh, June 21st. Um, uh, so, you know, sign up, engage with those resources. And, um, and yeah, just keep keep learning and sharing, sharing resources. Um, and yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's great to know. And uh, Sarah awesome. May, this was, uh, this was a very, very good conversation. All of our conversations are, are good. And I, uh, uh, I know the audience will enjoy it, but thank you so much for spending a couple minutes with me and talking about this with us. It's uh, it's much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Blackburn News Podcast. We want to leave you with the words of Senator Mary Jane McCallum. Herself a survivor of residential schools, she was taken from her family at the age of five. Her words are difficult to hear, but they are words that should be heard by every Canadian. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you to Senator Rob Black and Senator Martin. For offering me their space today. This is an intergenerational statement, a mass grave of children, sons, daughters, siblings, grandchildren, potential leaders and change agents, a genocide of children who were never given the opportunity to live their lives.
simply because they were Indian. Their connection to family, to their culture, their hopes and dreams for their futures, all stolen, and by whom? Does this continue today? These were 215 beautiful, innocent, trusting little spirits that believed in their hearts that it would all work out. They missed their families and never understood how they came to be where they were. One of my most persistent emotions in residential school was overwhelming loneliness and the bewildering feeling of abandonment. It was so unlike my family. I came to realize that abandonment by my parent was not the issue, but that I was abandoned by the system, whether it was the church or the government who initiated and perpetuated the kidnappings. This is Canada. Our hearts are broken. Canada is broken. As a child who went to residential school at the age of five, I want to send a message to the parents and all the relatives. I know you loved me. I never let you go. You were always in my thoughts, in my heart, in my tears, in buying, in my being. How could you not be? I know you didn't let me go and that you loved me and carried me with you. Don't feel guilty for what is not yours to carry. You have found me, and I'm so glad you never gave up. Know that I always loved you and still love you as only a child could. Remember my laughter, my spirit, my love of life, my love of stories and ceremonies, for that was always the part of you that I loved and carried close to me. Remember to pass on the beautiful parts of our culture because that is something they could never take away from us. Remember, they can never take away our love for each other. Sending love and peace to the 215 innocent and trusting souls and their families, to the Kamloops uh, First Nation, to the former students of residential schools, to our families, and to the specialists who discovered the remains. Thank you.